0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show once again. This is Mr. Garrett Ashley Mullet. I self-identify as very... Manly, very male, very masculine, hyper even. That is my preferred pronoun, is hypermasculine. Don't even call me him, just call me hyper refer to me in that way, and I will not be offended. But today is July 1st, 2021. It is episode 87 of season 3, episode 152. Of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today I want to talk about books we read more than once. Very curious topic. It just came to me. Because yesterday I finished Colin Woodward's The Republic of Pirates for the second time. For the second time in less than a year, actually. I liked it that much. I thought it was that interesting. I'm also working on... Charles C. Mann's 1491 for the, I believe, third time. I believe I've read it twice through completely before. And now I'm closing in on a third run through. And so the question is, why is it that we read some books more than once? Or what is it that is special about the books that we read more than once? Why do we go back again and... What does it say about us when there are certain books that we come back to routinely? We'll get into that here shortly, but before we do, I'll take a small rabbit trail to talk about a related article that I just found from 2019. It was January 29th, pre-COVID, and it was at CNBC.com that Abigail Johnson Hess Published a piece, 24% of American adults haven't read a book in the past year. Here's why. The article reads, and I quote, Reading has been shown to improve your physical and mental health. Research from professors at UC Berkeley have found that the more children read, the greater their vocabulary growth and cognitive skills. Successful people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Mark Cuban all rave about the importance of reading. But according to Pew Research Center, roughly a quarter of American adults don't read books at all. In fact, in 2018, the research group released figures suggesting that 24% of American adults say they have not read a book in part or whole, in print or electronically or audibly in the past year. According to the American Times Use Survey conducted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans over the age of 15, spend about 0.28 hours or about 16.8 minutes reading for personal interest each day. That's down from 21 minutes in 2007. Pew found that an American's likelihood of reading was directly correlated with wealth and education level. Adults with annual household incomes of $30,000 or less are more than twice as likely to be non-book readers as the most affluent adults about 17% of those making over $75,000 a year did not read books while 36% of those making less than 30,000 did not education level was an even more significant predictor adults with a high school degree or less are more than five times as likely as college graduates to report not reading books in the past year roughly 37% of americans with a high school degree or less did not read any books compared to 7% of those with a college diploma. Pew Research Analyst Andrew Perrin points to the fact that Americans with limited incomes and lower education levels are less likely to own electronic devices like smartphones, which are increasingly common tools for reading as one reason for the reading gap. There's also an obvious reason that low-income Americans with lower levels of education are less likely to read. Literacy. While up-to-date estimates of how many Americans struggle with basic literacy are limited, the National Center for Education Statistics estimates that 32 million adults in the United States can't read. There was a funny video my cousin Micah sent me from this Canadian comedy. It's very offbeat. You've probably heard of it, Trailer Park Boys, and this little clip, which... I will probably not include in the description for this podcast episode. This small clip from Trailer Park Boys features a man and his daughter who come to the trailer park peddling Bibles, and they're sharing the gospel. And they're very condescending, and they're very um, smug, very self-righteous. And at one point, the father is trying to give a bible to this uh, you know one main character one of the main characters in trailer park boys who's just this extremely redneck character and he asks him can you read my son right like in this very condescending sort of a way and i won't quote verbatim what the uh main character replies with, but it's something to the effect that uh, that all depends on, can you go take a flying leap, basically? Um, Yeah, so so it's funny to me, thinking about that, if a lot of these Americans, these 30-plus million Americans who can't read good, if those... Americans make up a good portion of these polling numbers for people that are not reading in a year, in a given year. They're not reading any book, even a little bit of a book, not even starting a book, and certainly not finishing a book at all in the course of a year. I just find that hard to imagine. Like, what in the world is it like to not read? Books. That sounds awful. That sounds awful to me. Uh, yeah. It's an odd deal. For those of you who don't read on a regular basis, I would encourage you to rethink that. You should read. You should read for your own sake, for your own mental, emotional, spiritual health, for your own physical health. It is good to read. And There are plenty of good books out there. If you just haven't found one for a long time that struck your fancy, keep looking or ask somebody. Ask me. I'll make recommendations if you have things that you're interested in. What do you watch on TV? You know, I just read this review on goodreads.com. Goodreads.com is this neat little social media site just for people that read. You put your updates on your reading list and book reviews and things like that. You can see what your friends have as far as their reading lists and book reviews and things like that. You could follow authors that, you know, your favorite books are written by, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I saw this review for Colin Woodward's The Republic of Pirates. And I'm reading through this review and I thought it was just kind of interesting to see some of the feedback that people had given on this book that I've now read twice in a year. And this one gal said that she had taken an interest in this book because she started watching the Stars uh, drama series, Black Sail. And so she starts watching Black Sail about the Pirates of the Caribbean, the real Pirates of the Caribbean, and she was hungry for more. Like, is there a good history of these folks that I could read to really know for sure how much of this show is legit and how much of it is just artistic license and made up. And so she reads Colin Woodward's book, The Republic of Pirates, and she liked it, and she wrote a a little review about it. But maybe that's how to get started reading, is figure out, well, what are you doing instead of reading, and can you read a book on that subject as a way of enhancing the experience of doing that thing that you do? If you work in a certain sector or if your upbringing and your personal experience and background is such and such, maybe find some books that help you dig deeper into understanding that so that you can respond to it and operate within that in a more intentional way. Now, that can be daunting. Maybe not everybody wants that because... They don't want necessarily the responsibility of being aware and feeling anxious maybe that now I'm accountable. Now I have a responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Now I have this greater understanding, so therefore I'm going to expect more of myself and I don't want that added headache and trouble. But it's worth it, right? Now that you've been presented with a challenge, I've thrown down the gauntlet and I've told you that you should do that. Now, you, you have to. You know, it's going to bother you if you don't. So, so read more, right? And don't take all of your information on current events, etc., from the news media. That's the biggest piece of advice that I could give for people who are interested in nonfiction, who are interested in the real world. Rubber meets the road. They don't get into fantasy and science fiction quite so much. They don't get into novels, romance, or otherwise. They want to know what is real and what is true. So they watch the news and they stay up on politics and all that. Okay, that's as well may be, but be careful if you're only ever following the news cycle and you're never taking a step back to look at hindsight of centuries ago, decades ago, when the historians and biographers maybe didn't have our set of biases And prejudices, because heaven knows we still have some. And it's refreshing sometimes to get a little bit removed from our biases, because then you can see our biases a little bit more clearly, and you can see the biases of the past a little bit more clearly. And then you can start to put two and two together and it enhances your ability to follow the news cycle and read between the lines and say, Now wait a second, I see what they did there. They used a wiggle word or a phrase that is misleading because they really don't know so much as they're trying to let on. They really don't have the facts that they're trying to pretend they do. This is a bluff. This is a bluff because they have an agenda, because they have an ideology, because they have an ax to grind, whatever. They really don't like this public figure, so they're going after him. The knives are out. But This sounds an awful lot like things that were written about Abraham Lincoln back in the day. This sounds a lot like things that were said about Winston Churchill back in the day. And time proved that those were spurious arguments, claims, insinuations. So also I'm going to take this with a grain of salt. Reading history and biographies and philosophy and theology and all of these things especially from a wide range of good authors who treat those subjects elegantly and simply and profoundly. It helps you to engage in real life. And we shouldn't think of reading as such a distraction from real life that we can't find time for it, right? I listen to audiobooks and I listen to plenty of audiobooks to the point that I really don't have much need to sit down and read a physical book very often, unless I can't get it on audiobook and it's required, somebody else requires it of me. I get plenty of information in from listening to audiobooks. But if I didn't listen to audiobooks, if I didn't have audiobooks, I should hope that I would make time to read physical books. If I didn't have the computer to pull up and to navigate, and to search around and to look for Profound articles that are meaningful, that enhance my understanding of the world and reality. If I didn't have that, I should hope that I'd be reading the newspaper and books. That I'd be doing what I did in my teenage years, and my young uh, preteen years. Going to the library, picking out books, going to the thrift store and buying old used books on the cheap. But enough about that. Let's move on. To why it is for those of us who do read and who do read with regularity, why is it that some of us read some books more than once? In episode 81 of season three, episode 146 of this podcast, I talked about Paul Turek, a pastor in Sydney, Montana, who recommended for me this book, Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. And when he recommended it to me, he told me he reads that book every year. He told me he reads it every year. And if I knew nothing else about the book, except that this pastor of 18 years, who is well-respected in the community, reads this book every year, if I knew nothing else about it, that was significant enough for me to be curious just to know him better. Why are you reading this more than once? Why are you reading this over and over again, regularly, on purpose, intentionally? What is it that is in here that is so worth coming back to? So I read it, right? And I would recommend it. I think that it has some interesting observations, points, anecdotes when it comes to improving communication, being more strategic in our communication towards the end of influencing the people and the groups around us that we're a part of, that we're in proximity to. But I typically don't come back to books like that more than once. In fact, it's very, very rare for me to read a book more than once. I have said for a number of years that Charles C. Mann's books, 1491 and 1493, are rare exceptions, and that I have read them each more than once. And now I'm on time number three. And so I'm thinking about this. Why is it that I am reading Charles C. Mann's 1491 about pre-Columbian American cultures, civilization? What is there in the archaeological record? What is there in the historical record? What are scientists finding out as they try and tackle this question of what was going on from Various angles, testing pollen, testing soil samples, testing radio radiocarbon dating on fossils or not fossils, but, but old bones of big game that were killed that have spear points embedded in them and things like that. You know, what actually happened? What was going on? What was the situation like in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans in the late 15th century. And then 1493 is a follow-up book. What was life like immediately after and during the colonization process? Let's do a before and after. Why do I keep coming back to those books? Well, for one, I think they're well-written. For two, it's exciting, right? It's exciting to think about this new world containing far more that we don't know than that we do know. It's fascinating to me to see science going back and forth, contending back and forth, and you look at the historical trends in science in these various scientific disciplines, anthropology, archaeology, paleontology, endocrinology, genetics, all of these things come to bear on tackling the question of what the Americas were like and depending on what scientist held sway and sat at a preeminent position and he could bless or damn as he chose anybody who had a new finding or a new theory, he could destroy their careers or raise them up if they were saying and affirming what he thought was correct, his orthodoxy. It's fascinating to watch those trends in science and to see at the end of the day how much or rather how little we actually know about what the Americas were like. We have evidence that there was civilization, that there was art, that there was culture, that there was religion. That there was architecture, that there was hunting, that there was gathering, that there was farming, there was cultivation, there was the development of technology, there were alliances, there were wars, there were battles, there were diseases, there were natural disasters, there were all these things that happened. We have oral tradition from various places. We have some limited pictographic evidence. And again, we have archaeological evidence. But It's not exactly a settled science to dig up something from a cave, something from a dry creek bed, shore, from the edge of a cliff in New Mexico. It's not exactly a science, exactly a science. It is a science, but it's not an exact science, rather. To scan the jungle floor and say, ha-ha, look, there's the outline of a building there. Underneath the jungle, we're going to use ground-penetrating radar, LIDAR, to look for Mesoamerican ruins in the Amazon rainforest or wherever. How old are they? Ooh, okay. You found them. Now, how old are they? And now, who did they belong to? And now, when were they built? And now, why were they built? And now, who lived here and what did they do here? Right? Why did they build here? Who were their friends? Who were their right? There's so many things, so many things that we just flat don't know. And what's curious is it puts it in starker contrast to go from 1491, 1493 to European history. And as I said here recently, I'm reading this book on Charlemagne, and it's around the same time period that Chaco Canyon was being constructed or began to be constructed in New Mexico by the Chacoan Indians. And Charlemagne, even though there's ample written evidence from various cultures and societies that followed Charlemagne's rule and reign or that were contemporary to his reign, the best scholarship apparently has to fill in a lot of gaps nevertheless because even when you have something written down... Scientists oftentimes like to pick pick, 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 and to say, "Well, we don't think that's likely. It's probably more like this if they if there was a battle that is recorded and so many people were said to have died on this side or on that side, it's very common for historians and scientists to say, "Well, we don't think it was probably that many. we think it's probably this many." And they almost always revise. the the, the death toll downwards. Rarely will you find death tolls revised upwards, especially where there's a vested interest on the part of the chronicler for the victorious side to inflate the numbers so as to aggrandize their own cultures, their own king's military accomplishment. Hey, we've got a big army. Our liege lord fielded 50,000 men against the Vikings or whatever, right? Against the Saracens, against the the fill-in-the-blink. And he thrashed them rightly. And there were 100,000 bodies slain upon the battlefield at the end of the day. A historian today gets a hold of that. And if they can't find corroborating evidence, they say, well, it's probably more like 5,000. It was probably more like 500, or it was probably more like five. It's like, you don't know that, right? It's guesswork. At the end of the day, why don't you just say what you know? I think most of the histories of the world would be far, far shorter if people were only saying what they know in fact to be true and not filling in a lot of speculation, or if it was clearly delineated exactly when and where the knowledge ends and the speculation begins. There would be far less written, but then again, there would be far less to write about because history is replete with knowing in part and speculating to a much greater extent than what is known. And sometimes that speculation pays off, and other times not so much. Sometimes it's a fool's errand. So it stands to reason that no temptation seizing us but that which is common to man. The historians follow suit and they're not any inherently better than the subjects they're studying. So they speculate and fill in a lot of gaps and don't always make it 100% clear where they're filling in gaps and where that is the original structure of knowledge, the body of knowledge. But nevertheless, Charles C. Mann, I think, does a much better job of exploring that by going back and forth and back and forth. Another book by him that's really good. I've only read three books by him, but I'd be interested to check out more because I've really enjoyed all three of the books of his that I've read. And I've read two of those three books multiple times now. I'm working on the third run through for 1491. The Wizard and the Prophet is a really great book on the origin story of this conflict in modern science over environmentalism the birth of the environmentalist movement and how you have one camp among scientists who've bought into the earth is falling into darkness and climate change and tumult and rising sea levels. And you have this other camp of scientists who say, well, wait a second. This seems like an emotional state more than a scientific reality in some of the claims that you guys are making. You're being hyperbolic Science really doesn't support that. You're not delineating between your computer model and the observable facts. So even in the computer models, you can't necessarily put blind trust in a computer and say, well, the computer is going to get it right. Computers don't make mistakes. Well, computers make mistakes if you program the mistakes into them. If your assumptions when giving them the math equation are not correct. The calculator is not going to catch your mistake. It's just going to do what you told it to do. And if then you turn around and you say the calculator is infallible, you might as well just say the person who punched the numbers into the calculator is infallible. Imagine that. Imagine I go to the store, I round up just an absolute cart full of very expensive items. And I go to the checkout and the clerk adds up those items and says that'll be 5 $1,392.46, sir. And I say, well, wait a second. I can't be right. And she looks at me quizzically. And I say, well, just see right here. I've got a calculator. I've been walking around the store with a calculator, adding things up as I went. And you don't know. You, You haven't been adding up these items as long as I have been. I've been walking around the store for three hours, adding these up as I go. And by my calculations this is only $50 worth of stuff. I'm only going to pay $50. Well, sir, I'm sorry to say, you've made a mistake somewhere along the way. Well, no, 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 no. No, no, it's not me, right? Look, look at the calculator, right? Look, the calculator says $53.46, right? The calculator doesn't lie. Well, (laughs) sir, how do I begin? How do I start? The calculator is only going to add up what you tell it to add up. And so if it has the wrong number or our numbers don't match, my register, after having scanned each and every one of these items, shows over $5,000. Your calculator shows $50. Perhaps we should consider whether human error could be playing a role here. And so it's interesting to look at that dynamic among very, very smart Capable, credentialed, serious people who have big titles and they have big bona fides and they have big budgets. They get grants from the government and from wealthy patrons. It's interesting when that curtain is peeled back like you're watching The Wizard of Oz, Frank L. Baum's Wizard of Oz. That curtain is peeled back and you find that the great and powerful Oz is actually more or less a charlatan who's pulling levers and pushing buttons and flipping switches, and it's smoke, and it's a light show, and it's not so real. It's designed to wow you, to blind you with science, and to impress you so that you fall silent among your betters. That's too often, not always, but too often, where science goes wrong, goes awry, That is the story of COVID, actually. I'm convinced that that will be the shocking story of COVID for generations to come. Is that Dr. Fauci blinded us with science. He was the great and powerful Oz. How dare you question the great and powerful Oz? Oz has spoken. It isn't until Toto peels back the curtain... And I'm not saying, by the way, I know my wife, my wife loves The Wizard of Oz. She grew up watching it tons and I ruined the movie for her. I'm sorry, Lauren. I'm so sorry I do this. But Frank Gilbaum was, (laughs) he was part of a cult, a new age cult called the Theosophical Society, which revered this gal you might have heard of called Madame Blavatsky and There's a whole bunch of craziness that I could go into that has to do with this Madame Blavatsky and others holding seances and being mediums and claiming to have a communion with spirits, which as a Christian, I believe were demons. I don't think she was just making it up. She could have been just making it up, but I don't think she was just making it up. I don't think she was crazy. I think she was having real interactions with demons who were visiting her across what she referred to as the Rainbow Road. So they were coming to her in these either trances or visions or whatever across what she called the Rainbow Road. And so then they're talking with her about their desires and plans for the earth and for humanity. And the Theosophical Society's goal was to get everybody on earth to follow this new religion, to create this brotherhood of mankind. It's super weird, super trippy. And they were concerned about any religion that would have exclusive truth claims, including, especially, Christianity, because Christianity was the preeminent religion. It was the religion to beat in the world because it was the religion of Western civilization, Western society. and So how are we going to get everybody to put down their exclusive truth claims, and embrace this new age religion that we are heralds of, well, we're going to have to convince everybody that truth is relative, it's subjective. They really helped to feed into this postmodern movement. And it's not not all just secular, self-impressed people who just come up with these ideas. No, no, it is Spiritual, too. And I, when I say spiritual, that's not a stand-in for intellectual, like religious. I mean spiritual, like we are spiritual creatures. We're not just lights and clockwork. We're not just mechanical gears turning, other gears fueled by carbon-based, you know, plant and animal matter and minerals. We are Flesh and bone, yes, but spirit also. And we are not the only spiritual beings. There's God. God is a spirit. And there's also this other order of created spiritual beings between us and God. And they have power. They have volition. They have authority that's been given to them by God. Even the ones who have fallen and have rebelled, God has allowed them a leash. It might be a short leash. It might be a longer leash than we would expect. But who has known the mind of the Lord? My conviction, my personal belief is that these spirits have been instrumental at various key times in bringing about delusions and starting movements. I personally think that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, had a visitation from one of these spirits in a cave. And that that spirit was a demon trying to convince him of a false religion. And actually, funny story, and I'll, I gotta go quickly soon here. We'll have to expand on this some other episode. But Muhammad actually wanted to kill himself after his first interaction with the spirit. And instead, he ended up knuckling under and embracing it and then becoming a herald of this new religion that we know now as Islam, this world-conquering religion. When I say that Islam is a demonic religion, I say that from the point of interpreting the history of how Muhammad supposedly got these revelations from heaven. Why, why do Muslims think of him as the last prophet? Well, it's because he claimed to have these special revelations, these special visions and messages from God that he was transmitting. And I don't believe he just made it up. I don't believe he was crazy. I believe he actually had a a real spiritual interaction. But then you fast forward and you get somebody like a Joseph Smith. He also claims to be visited by an angel. And it was very common in the mid to late 19th century for there to be a lot of spiritualism. Seances were a big thing, as creepy and, and awful as it is. Uh, there are presidents of the United States whose wives got very involved in this. And it was still a big deal in, uh, I believe, FDR's White House. that they, had, they There were seances at the White House. I I could be misremembering. I shouldn't even say it. But I almost think I heard that Hillary Clinton had a seance at the White House. Maybe I'm just presuming that based on her demeanor. Uh, But Abraham Lincoln's wife, she couldn't get over the fact that their son had died and she held seances at the White House. And I think that uh, President Lincoln even attended some of those, which is awful to think about. Uh, That's the kind of stuff that in the Old Testament gets the kingdom taken away from you uh, is communing with these dead spirits or these undead persons or these... Maybe fallen angels who, for a price, with a deal, will put you back in touch with somebody who has passed on. God makes very clear that his people are not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to engage in that. Uh, We're supposed to have no part of it. But what we don't find in the scriptures is that that stuff is not real. What we find in the scriptures is that stuff is real and also verboten and also off limits. God doesn't want us engaging in that. I think my personal feel is not because he feels threatened, but because he cares for us. He knows that that is dark, dangerous, corrupt stuff. It is a slippery slope, very apt to lead to our being entrapped and destroyed spiritually. He doesn't want that. He loves us. He cares for us. So he tells us, don't go there. And besides that, he should be sufficient for us right? His grace should be sufficient for us, and we should just accept that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Sometimes people we care about go before their time, and that's hard and that's painful, but you have to let them go. You have to trust the good Lord that he is faithful and that there is a resurrection for those who are dead, who were in Christ, whose names are written in the book of life. That's why we try and evangelize as much as possible, and we try to make convincing sound arguments from the scriptures as to the nature of God's salvation in Christ. But Frank Yelbaum, he was definitely a Theosophical Society member, prominent one, and believe it or not, I'm sorry folks, The Wizard of Oz is a Theosophical uh, parable wherein they travel down the Yellow Brick Road somewhere over the rainbow, Right? Uh, there are these hidden messages that have to do with theosophy and the the worldview and the religion, this new age religion of theosophy, and even the fact that there's a good witch and a bad witch is a subtle undermining of the biblical prohibitions on witchcraft of any kind. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Well, there is no such thing as a good witch, so <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. The, the, the options are limited to: Are you a bad witch? Obviously, or are you a bad witch? Not so obviously. Uh, you know, my cousin Micah very much disagrees with me when it comes to fiction. I'm still muddy in my thinking a little bit, probably when I can embrace Gandalf, uh, at least in some measure in Lord of the Rings, but I don't want to embrace Harry Potter, that series. That's a topic for another day. We'll get into that. I promise. But for right now, I got to run. That's enough for this episode. I'd be interested to know if you listen to or read books more than once, what books are they and why? Why do you read the books that you do more than once? For me, it has a lot to do with just being absolutely fascinating, fascinated rather, not fascinating, but fascinated. Maybe I'm fascinating because I read some books more than once, but I'm fascinated by the subject matter and... There was a lot there, and I didn't feel like I got it all the first time. and I want to understand better. Okay, wait a second. what did he just say? Let's Let's play that back again. Okay, you know what? I gotta just read the whole thing over again because that seemed really significant, and I don't want to miss what it is that he was trying to say there. But I'd be interested to hear what you read more than once. if you read if you don't read, you should, you should read. read, read books. Read regularly, make it part of your routine. If you work out, if you exercise, if you try to eat right, you try to get good rest, get good sleep, have a good healthy social life, you should also read and you should be reading good books that remind you of the true and the good and the beautiful, help you understand and grasp and embrace the good and the true and the beautiful. But again, gotta leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.